Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. I'm wearing white, Bill, because Labor Day is coming, and I'm told it's a faux pas <laughs> if I wear white afterwards. I didn't realize you were such a so fashion conscious, man. I feel like if you're in a place like Palm Beach, you could wear white year round. But in West, West Virginia, Virginia, we we adhere to very strict <laughs> protocol and et- etiquette. You know, if you sh- if you show up to church after Labor Day wearing white, what what are people going to say in the in the town square? Well, it'll just be a lot of gossip about me. Um, <laughs> they won't kick me out of church or anything like that, but there'll be a lot of you know whispers about. You know, about me not getting the memo. So I don't want that to happen. Here I am sporting the white. And I gotta tell you, man, it's a it's it's a beautiful day here. It is uh I know this is riveting conversation for people around the country, but it's one of those it's September first, Bill, and it feels like it. Now, uh I saw the other day um that there is a an electric battery plant. Right. This is an article in in Associated Press. Electric battery maker to locate factory in northern West Virginia. Batteries will be built at a 482,000 square foot plant in Taylor County off Route 50 near Bridgeport. Is that near you? No. No, okay. Uh, Plant will eventually employ 350 workers. Originally at a glass factory that ceased operations in 2009, the plant will produce cobalt-free batteries an effort to bring down the cost of U.S. lithium-ion battery production. The Democratic Republic of Congo has historically been the top producer of cobalt worldwide, with most mines controlled by Chinese companies. So it seems like, to me, not just the the Joe Manchin vision uh, being implemented, uh, bringing back you know clean energy manufacturing into the U.S., but also... The Hillary Clinton vision. This is what she talked about in 2016 and was maligned for it as being disrespectful to coal. Uh, do you think West Virginia is appreciating what Democrats have been doing for them? No. <laughs> but um, I would say just as an American, we, we have to find a way to get lithium and all you know, all these these minerals and batteries. And I, I don't know what West Virginia can do to help, but, uh, but bring it on. And I got to tell you... Um, so like if if West Virginia is like this, I'm like right there, right? Just the tip, Bill. Barely, barely in the state. But but you're north, right? Uh, yeah. But I I think, and I'm not an expert on the state, interestingly. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways to be north. Like you could be near yeah. Pittsburgh, yeah. for example, yeah. um, and be north, but but nowhere near me. You're you're, you're Harper's Ferry. Yeah. All right, uh, Bill. Um, got a couple things to run by you today, but you know what? Let's start with Mitch. Mc- I'm interested with Mitch McConnell in the yeah. last 24 hours. Now, okay, so everybody knows Mitch McConnell, former majority leader, now the Senate minority leader, uh, widely seen, I think, as being a, a very shrewd political operator. But he's getting up in years, and um. And we've had just in the past 24 hours, I saw a story where he's like sort of in a tiff with Peter Thiel because, you know, Peter Thiel funded these candidates like uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Blake Masters in Arizona. And, you know, Thiel pours all these money, this money into these guys who may not have won their primary, wouldn't would not have won their primary without it. He gets them nominated and then he wants to walk away and expect Mitch Weird. McConnell to to carry him over, you know. The finish line, and McConnell's basically saying, like, well, don't bank on that. Mm-hmm. And then Rick Scott, you know, the, the senator from Florida who is in charge, I guess he's the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee this year, seems to be in Politico mm-hmm. criticizing McConnell. Remember when McConnell said uh, that candidate quality could impact the Senate races, mm-hmm. implying yep. that. Uh, so Rick Scott has taken shots at McConnell now. At least that's my interpretation. So what in the world is going on here? I mean, Republicans in disarray. I mean, this is really, this is really unusual in a midterm year. Midterm year, typically the president's party is in disarray because you're governing. You got to make tough choices. 
you can't do everything that your base wants. Some things don't pan out the way you want them to. Unexpected developments. And the opposition party, you know, every, every party has their divisions. But when you're the in, when you're on the outs, you can easy to paper over them and just focus. Let's just let's just beat up the president's party. Let's put all our all our BS aside. Just focus on what they're doing wrong. Uh, and that script is completely flipped right now. Uh, we and- haven't we haven't talked about this yet, Bill. But I think there's an, a conventional wisdom is beginning to emerge that suggests that because Donald Trump never really went away, and that's because he wants to run again and because of the Mar-a-Lago stuff and the January 6th stuff, because Donald Trump never really went away and because of the Dobbs decision, um, that in effect, the dynamic of a midterm where the incumbent party, uh, the incumbent president's party is basically, it's a referendum on them, that because Trump never really went away, that dynamic doesn't really exist. And so this is in not a normal midterm, um, which we're, we figured out in the past month. But what do you make of that as a reason behind it? Well, you know, I've, I've written about this in a couple different pieces as of late. Um, my most recent one in the Washington Monthly. And then actually, uh, I leaned on uh, an academic paper that was produced in 2010, which actually rejects the argument that a midterm is a referendum election. You know, the conventional wisdom is that this is a referendum on presidential party performance or presidential performance. And they argue, no, you look at the polling over the last 16 midterms, you can see in the congressional, in the generic congressional ballot, which is various forms of the question, who do you plan to vote for for Congress, Democrat or Republican, no names. Um, now, the opposition party, that number goes up over the course of the year. It doesn't start out with the pendulum swing, but you end on the pendulum swing. Um, and that trajectory happens regardless of presidential job approval. President can be popular over the course of that time, but the out party is doing better anyway. So they argue there's no correlation here, so they so it can't be referendum on presidential performance. So their 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 alternative argument is that midterms are a balance election that the okay the but the but I would say even if we assume that that's the ticket, then it's not a referendum right. to balance. Well, right. Dobbs, and by the way, again, pro-life, I think Roe versus Wade should have been overturned, you know, whatever. I'm throwing that out just in case anyone don't, doesn't. Don't call Matt Lewis a squish on You know on where I stand. Pro-life. But right that now I've got my, I've got my political analyst hat on, okay? Yeah. So if it's about balancing, I would argue that the Dobbs decision is the biggest change in the last two years, right? Well, that, I mean, that, that, is, that was the argument that I put forth, that we have a situation where the, the out party has implemented policy. That doesn't, that doesn't usually happen. You know, the, the, in, the Supreme Court was an instrument of Republican policy, which unleashed more policy at the state level through Republican legislatures and governors and attorney generals. Uh, and it's a very imbalancing moment things that were things that were no no longer are in in a lot of places in the country or if they haven't actually changed yet there's a fear that they will change soon uh and that's just one source of imbalance because the other source being trump you have threats to democracy you have election deniers being nominated you have investigations going on um and you and you have trump actively talking about running for president and trying to overturn uh and and put people in place to make it sure that he wins regardless of what the actual results are um so so it's not like it's not like democrats won the presidency and then ran the agenda for the next Mm -hmm. two years and things went south right I mean, th- a lot I of mean, things did go things did go south, but they were never really in control. And again, I think you could argue that the biggest public policy shift that has occurred was a quote unquote Republican policy. I mean, Republicans still have something to say. They can say Democrats spent like drunken sailors and inflation went through the roof. And if you elect us, we're going to clamp down the spending and fix inflation. I mean, that, that is the best argument that Republicans can make. Um, and uh, I, I think I said to you and a couple other of our of our chums 
uh, on a on a text previously. You know, think of what would be going on now if Republicans had a slate of Senate candidates who are all small business owners and all they talked about was inflation and nothing else. And, and maybe and, and the Supreme Court didn't overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, what would the selection be like? Yeah, uh, I mean, but it seems inflation- to be Bill, and 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 it seems to be that. Wasn't there a politician recently uh, in New York, maybe, that did talk about the special election, that did talk about inflation a lot, and it didn't work? Right, because abortion over- overwhelmed that. Right. I mean, this was a New York 19 was a swing district. Biden won by a hair in 2020, 1.5 points. But Pat Ryan, I think, won by four, if I'm correct. Um, so I think we talked about that last week. Right, right. The time flies. So, so, I mean, inflation's not out of the picture. You still see inflation high up in in the when the question is asked, what's your top issue? What's the most important issue? Um, but it's certainly complicated by these other things. And Democrats now being, I think, a little bit helped by the fact that prices are coming down. You know, we're still, they're still higher than they were. So we're not out of the woods, but there's at least some positive movement for Democrats to, to, to point to. And... Republicans are not able to really coalesce around, here's what we're going to do instead. You should count on us to fix inflation because we're going to do X, Y, and Z. They can't even get those words out of their mouths easily. I mean, Trump gets raided. All of a sudden, they're talking about Trump being raided. And they're not talking, this Republican's not talking about inflation. So I think they're hamstrung in a bunch of different ways. And and because you have lots of polling and special special election data, that's not pointing the Republicans' favor. You're getting a circular firing squad dynamic, yeah. and it's not even it's and it's not even September yet, you know, uh, which is not helpful for them getting on track between now and November. And speaking of being hamstrung, though, Bill, it strikes me so Peter Thiel again backed these two candidates, J.D. Vance in Ohio, I think is probably more mainstream. Blake Masters in Arizona, a little bit weirder. Of a candidate, we're grading on a curve. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that Vance is more mainstream relative to Masters. Yes, but I wouldn't well, call Vance uh, a generic, you know, inoffensive. You know, he's not the small business owner. I'm just, I'm just the guy who owns uh, Joe's Mugs. I own the local gas station. And I'm here to tell you that inflation's killing us. You know, that he's not, he's not that, but he's not as wackadoodle as Masters. Well, in any event, neither it seems unlikely if it hadn't been for Peter Thiel's money and Donald Trump's endorsement um, that neither of them would have won. So Peter Thiel and Trump thrust them on us and thrust them on Mitch McConnell. But then Thiel, basically, his theory is, okay, now I can step away. They're not my problem anymore because the Republican Party now has a it's either them or a democrat and so you guys now Mitch McConnell or whoever in RSC you guys fund it and McConnell is basically saying like well not necessarily we're going to put our money where we think it needs to go and they they um canceled an ad buy in Arizona you know for millions of dollars mm-hmm. that would have gone to help masters <clears throat> but i guess the question is McConnell is hamstrung right cuz he needs he he wants to be the Senate majority majority leader again, and so uh, this is a game of chicken. But do you do you think that at the end of the day, will McConnell swoop in and help Masters put it, put him over the finish line? Before I answer that directly, I just want to go back to to Teal because I think what he's doing is stupid. It doesn't serve his own interest. I mean, this is someone who, from what I've read, like he wants to play in the primaries because he wants to move the party towards his, you know, America first libertarian, you know, uh, vision. Uh, and he thinks that once I do that in the primary, my job is done, uh, which is not smart because if you, if you, if you anoint all these candidates with your money and then they all lose, you are harming your own agenda. The party is not going to want to keep going your way because your, your candidates can't close the deal. So he should want to, Get in, get in on the game in the general election to make sure they actually win, uh, and, and not to, only to not only because <clears throat> not only because they need your money, 
But um, excuse me, not only because they need your money, but also because honestly, then you could help control the messaging too. That's that's the other side of it. If you outsource, uh, you know, the fundraising to someone else, if you let someone else fund it, you also lose control of the messaging. And we, we talk so much about how big donors are warping democracy and they make Washington the plaything of the special interests. Uh, I'm not saying that special interest influence is, is, is a fiction. I, I just think it gets wielded in different ways and just simply giving money to candidates because the, the money they give to candidates tends to actually be kind of a drop in the bucket. You know, it's, it's, it's how they lobby after, after the election. I think their influence is more noticeable. Teal is an example of what happens when your party is too uh, tethered to a few individual big money donors because individual rich people are weird. They're weird. They have their own like vision for society that is uh, disconnected to what average people want. Uh, it's not even about like necessarily uh, lying in their own pockets. It's that they, they have so much freaking money they don't know what to do with and, they, and, and getting into politics is fun for them. Uh, so it's not like Peter Thiel is, is representative of the average Silicon Valley billionaire because a lot of those guys try to get Democrats elected. Um, but now, you're, now you're, you're, you have a field that has been shaped by so you two weirdos, Thiel and Trump, without any thought to who was actually good at winning elections. Hmm. And now you're stuck with them. Uh, and if you can't break free of that, if you can't find a way to marshal other resources and political influence, so you're not so you're not under their thumb. Yeah. You're gonna have bad candidates. I mean, I mean But Oz, I guess what I'm saying is it it would be poetic justice, and in the long run it would do good if if McConnell let them twist in the wind and let them lose. But he can't do that because yeah. The, his that future is tied here. to their future. Well, that's, I mean, I, it's hard again, because, you know, McConnell is, you know, stone cold calculator. You know, he, we know he will partner up with insane people if it maximizes his own power with the confidence that he'll get more of what he wants at the end of the day. Uh, he's not going to do something, you know, on some sort of larger principle if it means his power is diminished. Um, so I don't know if, I mean, I, I, I would assume that if he thought Masters could win and keep him and make him majority leader again, he will put money into Masters' campaign. If he's pulling money away, he thinks he's going to lose, not because he thinks Masters is some sort of, you know, not nice person who said mean things about him. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi stuck with a whole bunch of people who said mean things about her because she knew it wouldn't matter at the end of the day, they'd make her speaker. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure McConnell thinks the same way. What I don't understand for McConnell is how do, how do you see the math working? Where do you see you getting to 51. Yeah. If you, you give up, if you give up on masters, how do you get to 51? I mean, he's, they're apparently saying that he, well, he just raised money for an Oz, Vance and Walker. Is that right? I thought, I, he, I thought his, I thought the super pack, his super did something for those three recently. And I don't see Oz and Walker being any, better position than well, masters there was a poll that shows herschel walker winning did you see that that that, 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 that did it did come out that was from emerson which is not necessarily the most reputable of pollsters and it's the only one in the past several weeks where he's up um uh, now again maybe more will come out that's maybe that's they're on to something know, but, but uh, i i can't say i've seen anything in that campaign to suggest that walker's found his groove and you know the, the big Democratic super PAC just put up an ad where he's literally admitting to threatening his wife with a gun, uh, and they have the wife saying the, the ex-wife saying the same thing, and they have a reenactment of the gun at the at the woman's temple because with the woman saying he put the gun to my temple. I mean, so what is happening there that would help Walker? I don't know. Um, and you know, Oz's campaign is a total disaster. Uh, I mean, I, I can understand McConnell saying, let's cross our fingers and Fetterman looks terrible in the debates because he's recovering from a stroke. And maybe that and that will be yeah. our Hail Mary. 
Now, it's also, as I mentioned, Rick Scott, senator from Florida, who's in charge of the Senate committee uh, right now, um, is criticizing, at least it appears he's criticizing McConnell. McConnell's comment being uh, where he said that the candidate quality could impact things in the Senate. And, and he thinks it's more likely that the House would flip Republican than the Senate. And uh, Rick Scott is criticizing that. At least that's my that is my interpretation and others as well uh, in Politico this morning. And this is interesting, too. I mean, I would say that Mitch McConnell's political judgment is probably better than Rick Scott's. It just my only guess is that Rick Scott is making a bet right now that that by um, pretending everything's okay, that he might get lucky. And just because it's a Republican wave year, ostensibly, um, he'll get lucky and these Republicans are going to win. And then he'll get credit from the Trump world for being the guy who never wavered. And McConnell will be cast as the uh, you know Eeyore or something to that effect. I don't know. Other than that, what what makes sense? What's he up to? Well, I mean, I mean, Scott, I think. Here, here's a theory. Here's a theory. Um, Scott needs his candidates to win or he looks like an idiot. He wants to be president for some for some ridiculous reason. Thinks he has a prayer. He he runs ads with his you know Lex Luthor Skeletor face, uh, you know in in Iowa and Florida uh, in, in Iowa and, and Georgia, uh, thinking he's positioning himself for a twenty twenty four run, which is you know total lunacy. Um, but obviously, if if he can't even win the Senate in a midterm year when starting from a fifty fifty place, he's going to look like a total shamil. McConnell, McConnell has been around long enough to know that he has power either way. Majority, minority, you still got to run almost everything through him regardless. I mean, the one thing that he can't control in the minority, he can't control judges. uh, Although they, they, because Democrats are honoring blue slips, they do have some influence at the district court level. Um, uh, Otherwise, but, but but otherwise, he can't control a judge pipeline as well, and he can't control what happens in reconciliation. Uh, but otherwise, almost everything that's gone through bipartisan, his stamps on it. You know, he shapes it. So he may be relatively okay either way, uh, and feel like, hey, you know what? If I'm playing in enough races that win, I'll get credit. But if we don't. These are my candidates. I didn't pick them. Trump did and Peel Teal did and Rick Scott did. And I'll say your way is a stupid way and do things my way next time. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's a better position to spin it either way than Rick Scott is. The other thing that's interesting is that Rick Scott, I don't think this would have happened a few years ago. I mean, so Mitch McConnell is this kind of gray beard, highly, just very strategic and he's the Senate leader, the Senate minority leader. Rick Scott hasn't been in the U.S. Senate that long. He's obviously loaded, former governor of Florida, but he works for McConnell in a sense. Obviously, he's not afraid of McConnell. Like, shouldn't shouldn't it be shouldn't it be unwise to to criticize McConnell? Shouldn't there be a penalty for that if in, in a uh, some sort of a normal institution? Well, you know, McConnell's numbers, his job approval numbers are terrible. So Rick Scott's not going to hurt himself at home. You know, Florida Republicans aren't going to punish him in a primary because he's like, you know, threw some shade McConnell's way. And in fact, almost any candidate could beat up on McConnell at home and not pay a penalty for it. You know, no one, he's not beloved. I don't mean from the voters. The world. I don't mean from the voters. I mean, you can you can be in the U.S. Senate and throw shade at Mitch McConnell and nothing happens to you? Like, you think, could you do that with Lyndon Johnson? I mean, but it's just a different, it's a different world. You know, I, the, the types of horse trading and, and political punishments, you know, using pork as a weapon or 
you know, leaking mean things about enemies to the press. I mean, that kind of stuff just isn't done as readily anymore. Um, so I don't think it, I think it phases either one, Scott or McConnell, to have this kind of stuff in the press. It's, I think it doesn't help Republicans writ large if you're if you're having these intra-party squabbles because it means you're filling up some media space with your own nonsense and not filling it with attacks on Democrats. Um, but McConnell, I suspect, is already thinking, man, we might be kind of screwed no matter what here. You know, this I mean, this is literally the worst field of Senate candidates ever put on the ever put on the field. In, in history, I, I, I challenge anyone to think of a, of a worse group than this group. Uh, and McConnell might be reading the writing on the wall and saying, look, we got to find a way to make this not look like it's my fault. All right. Uh, what else? We, Alaska, got we haven't here. talked Alaska. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah right. Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin. Um, so Palin. The quotable rogue, Sarah Palin. Yeah, exactly. Well, I thought about trying to write about it, but be, it, it's hard to write a really good piece about Palin because, I mean, because it was such a it's such a weird thing in Alaska, right? Because of the rank, it's like a jungle. It's like a jungle primary, but it's not a primary. Everybody's in the same race, and then it's ranked choice. So even though Republicans got sixty percent of the vote. A Democrat won. And then on top of it all, am I right that they do this all again in November? Right, so it's really weird to like it's hard to write the piece that says like Palin is back or Palin is done or whatever, because I don't even know what's going on. Well, let's just just to just to clarify. So there's a new new system in Alaska. It was passed by 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 ballot initiative. Um it was the last year, the year before. Um some people believe it was Murkowski driven. It would help Murkowski survive uh, general elections because she wouldn't have to win a Republican primary to get on the general election ballot. So you start with it with it with a jungle election. Everybody in the pool, everyone's in the same ballot. You know who knows how many candidates, and then that gets called into top four uh, for the runoff, and the top four is done ranked choice style. So you can, you can put one, two, three, four your candidates in, in order of preference. And in this case, so, so you have a special election because Don Young passed away. Um, Alaska has one congressperson. Don Young has been that person for 49 years, um, passed away. So this is an election to fill a few months of that term. But there's also the election for the next term, which is in November. Uh, and the same people are running essentially in both contests. Uh, and for the special, there were four people that made the cut, but Al Gross, one of them said, you know what? I don't think I can make it. I'm not going to actively run uh, in August. Uh, and so that, and he was a nominally independent, but a Democratic friendly one. That left one, you know, big, you know, capital D Democrat on the ballot and two Republicans, Sarah Palin and Nick Begich. Uh, and. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, Pell Rota, who was the Democrat who won. She had 40% first choice votes. Sarah Palin coming in second and Begich coming in third. And so Republicans now, Republicans are very suspicious of ranked choice voting. It hasn't helped them in Maine, where Jared Golden has won uh, two elections with ranked choice voting. Uh, 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 so Republicans have argued this is this is convoluted and rigged. She didn't have the most votes. Republicans had the most votes. So it should be a Republican. Um, uh, now, their argument was different in Maine, where they would say, hey, the Democrat didn't have the most votes on the first choice. The Republican had the most votes. And that person wins thanks to a bunch of Greens swooping in afterwards. In this case, they had the most votes, just a plurality. But Republicans had the most, you combine them on the first choice. Uh, now, ranked choice should help Republicans in that scenario, in the Alaska scenario, because they had the most votes. If they were a unified party, they would very easily shift from 
the second favorite Republican to the first favorite Republican, and you win the election. The only reason why they didn't win is because Sarah Palin is not well-liked amongst all Republicans. Yeah. She okay. was so damaged that a bunch of Republicans made the Democrat second choice. That's There's a the little... fault of the ranked choice system. It's the fault of Republicans for being such a mess of a party that they can't get their people on the same page. Two quick things, Bill. One, I think there's like a little static when you're talking. And I don't especially know when you move around, could it be like, is the mic not completely plugged in or I don't know? Well, I'm using, I'm, I'm just using the AirPods and the laptop. That is so weird. It's happened last week too. I don't know what the deal is. Okay. The other thing, let me ask you this because ranked choice voting is, is convoluted. Like, I'm not saying I'm not against it. Like, but isn't there a game theory thing where, it's not just that I like, let's say that I'm voting for, is it, was it Begich? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So like, let's say I'm voting for Begich and I want Begich. Isn't there a game theory that says I can't make Palin my second pick? No, no. Because rank, rank choice takes that strategy out of the equation. It's safe for a Begich voter to put Palin number two. If Begich has a shot, then, uh, that Palin number two vote becomes irrelevant. Okay, so there's um, no, there's no way that 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 helps Begich by not making her number two. Uh, I mean, you have to. If, that, that's called a bullet vote. I mean, if if, if you if you bullet vote, you you big Begich number one. You don't do anybody else. You know, Eric Adams ran that way. Eric Adams. You know, people would say, well, "Who's your number two? Who's your number three? And he was like, "There's no. I don't have any number two. Just vote Eric Adams." Um, uh, that doesn't really help you mathematically, because again, uh, if if you're going to win, then your first choice votes are going to be in play. The, your second choice will only matters if you if you drop off, and you weren't going to win anyway. Oh, okay. so there's no risk in putting down a two or three. The only the political sort of risk is are you muddying your own message by putting other candidates' names in the mix in your coming out of your mouth? Uh, but again, that was a primary, mind you. This is a general in Alaska. Uh, so, and only, and, you, and you're effectively only dealing with three people. So, you know, Begich has to, you know, talk smack about Palin so he gets more first choice votes. But his people don't harm him by making Palin number two. They might be dissuaded for doing so because they're so mad at Palin because of the things Begich has said about her or the, what she's done to herself. But strategically speaking, they're both Republicans. They both believe much the same thing. The safe thing, if you want a Republican in that seat, the safe thing is to make Begich one and Palin two. Okay, so so, but this is going to happen again in, in three months. Correct. And so- do you do do Republican voters now learn the lesson? I st I'm still going to vote Begich one, but I'll make Palin my number two. It depends how mad they are. I mean, if you if these I mean, Palin got only half of Begich number twos. About 30 percent went to uh, Pelrota and the rest went away because they voted for someone else farther down the ballot or just or just skipped putting out a choice. Uh, so. If they wake up today and say, ah, oh, crap, we got a Democrat. I didn't want that. I'm not going to make that mistake next time. Then maybe. But if they said, thank God, because I really freaking hated Sarah Palin. <laughs> and Pearl didn't seem so bad to me. Then they won't. Um, I mean, that's and that's what ranked choice is supposed to accomplish. To allow, because it's very rare that, uh, you know, everyone is perfectly satisfied with whoever wins. Because people are on a broader political spectrum than we give them credit for. But this is supposed to get you towards the middle. Find the person who is the most acceptable combination of number one, number two choices, which, you know, just based on the data, like, worked in this case. You know, there there, there is a quirky example for Burlington mayor uh, several years ago uh, where a third-party candidate won. Uh, and because... The Democrat, uh, because the, the the Democrat had dropped off early, 
that those second choice votes, a lot of those, a lot of, uh, okay, I'm sorry, because the Democrat dropped off early, a good number of the Republican candidates, number twos, didn't get factored in because he'd already been cut out of the deal. Mm. Uh, so it's not like ranked choice voting always works perfectly. There, you, you can't have quirky outcomes. Uh, but in this case, this worked the way the system's supposed to work. Palin's support was thin. And that just got exposed in the ranked choice voting process. I mean, I think that people who are complaining about the fact that Republicans got 60 percent are either a doing it because it's what you say. I mean, it's just a politically convenient argument to make or B, they see the world as a team sport and a struggle between two parties, not between individuals. And so um, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I mean, Republican, I mean, you know, Tom Cotton, I saw put out that tweet. You yeah, know, that's who Tom Cotton said that. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe you may recognize it doesn't want to admit it. This is a symptom of the disease in your party. Your party is not unified. That's your problem. Fix that problem. And you don't have to worry about ranked choice voting in Alaska. Um they 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 want to get a pass. They want they want to they want you to look away from the division of the party yeah. and assume that because there's R next to your name, everyone should that the R should win. But that's what it, that's exactly but, how Trump got elected. I mean, because the rules, the first past the post rules and the binary choice, Republican voters who really didn't like Donald Trump in 2016 were given the option. Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. That's it. And so, you know, I think that I'm sure it's, it's not a surprise to me that ranked choice voting has emerged at this time, maybe in response to what happened with Donald Trump taking over the Republican primary with plurality and then forcing this binary choice with Hillary Clinton <laughs> as the other option. I mean, if there's ever been an argument for ranked choice voting, it would be 2016. Now, if you're a McConnell type Republican, you're thinking, how can I get these Trumpers out of my freaking party? Start pushing ranked choice voting. Like This is what can potentially keep the Trumpers away from winning these primaries with very small pluralities. Um, and you get more chamber of commerce, small business owner type Republicans who aren't going to blow it in the general election. Yeah. It's really funny how the rules predict the outcome. I mean, the rule, uh, in some cases, the rules are, are, are arbitrary, and yet they will predict the outcome. And, and a lot of our current political dysfunction is a product of the specific rules that we had in place. And I think for a long time, they really served us very largely well, but obviously, um, things have changed. Well, but I, I think you have to be careful to assume that if I only get the process that I want, I'm going to get the outcomes that I want because you still have to win elections. You still have to organize people. You still have to have good candidates. I mean, a lot of ranked choice voting activism has come from the Green Party because they want to get rid of the wasted vote argument. They, and they think, well, if there's no more wasted votes because your vote will still get counted, then your inner green will come forth and everyone will vote for these third party candidates and they'll actually win. Now you see how this has worked in Maine. The Greens still have terrible candidates and only get two, three percent of the vote, and their votes just get thrown to the Democrat, you know, after the ranked choice process kicks in. And you end up with and you end up with the more moderate candidate. Um, now maybe if you had like a really, really good green candidate or a really good libertarian candidate. Um, who had you know some political experience and was good on the stump and could raise money, maybe that math will end up working in your favor with the help of ranked choice. But it hardly is magical powder that allows an unpopular fringe party to become popular. Um, at minimum, you have to understand the rules of the game. Uh, if you're in a ranked choice election, you have to treat it like a ranked choice election. You can't treat it like a base election. 
Uh, if I all, I all I need is the Trumper fringe, and that will be sufficient because the Republicans will naturally come home. It clearly does not work that way. Uh, there was an Oakland mayor's race. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of ranked choice voting in the in the Bay Area. You know, she hustled. This was a Jean Kwan. She hustled for second choice votes. She would go out there and say, hey, I'm your first choice. That's cool. Please think of me for your number two. You know, she's building a coalition that way. Um, you have, it, it's very I mean, similar Abraham to Abraham Lincoln, have, wasn't Abraham Lincoln's, he was everybody's second pick eventually. And I mean, that's he how he emerged like, through, I don't I mean, know he how was many a, he rounds. Was a super of, duper, super, I mean, a lot of those early, you know, old school conventions, you are, they were, they would play the, People who were dark horses would say, you know what, we're not going to be everyone's first choice out of the bat. But and a lot of these old conventions had the two-thirds thresholds. So it was very hard to actually get all the way to the finish line. So a person might start with 55%, and then after like six, seven, eight ballots, they'd kind of stall out, and their people would get frustrated. And then the dark horse would swoop and say, hey, your guy, your guy, your guy, your guy can't make it. Your guy can't get to two-thirds. Give up, you know. Here's how my guy can get the two thirds, but you, but I need you to kind of get the ball rolling, and these kinds of waves of activity would materialize on the floor. So it's kind of, I mean, it's not literally ranked choice voting, but there's certain you know overlapping elements. Um, so you got to understand the rules of the game. You know, when when the the primary calendar changed with the George McGovern reforms post 1968, George McGovern was the guy who understood it and ran the election. That took advantage. I mean, he didn't have a real broad support in 72 in the primaries, but he he knew where he needed the support to have sufficient delegate strength to win at win the convention. And the guys who were playing under old rules didn't didn't adapt. You got to know the rules of the game. And if, if you're in Alaska, at least, I mean, obviously, most Republicans have to deal with ranked choice voting. But if you're in a state that has it, you better figure it out. So, uh, Bill, before we go, big... Uh news, I guess, this week was the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union. Um, I think that he's gotten a lot of, uh, you know, positive uh, kind of obituaries and remembrances. But but what it, what was your take on Gorby? On Gorby? You know, I've uh, I've written a little bit about um, Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, I wrote a piece a while back about the uh, Reykjavik summit, which I think is not well understood because um, the, the Republican narrative of that was, you know, Gorbachev wanted Reagan to give up, you know, Star Wars and Reagan wouldn't do it. And Reagan stormed off. And that was how Reagan, like, you know, was it the tough guy versus Gorbachev and the, and the Soviet Union crumbled after that. And it leaves out a lot of, you know, Developments that followed Reykjavik. I mean, you know, so what happened there was it wasn't supposed to be a big summit. It was supposed to be kind of a pre-summit. Supposed to kind of prep for the next summit. And Gorbachev comes in with a lot of big, bold um, arms control reduction proposals. You know, cutting their nukes by fifty percent. And the Reaganites were thrown. Uh, and there was a there's, a there's a big gamesmanship with these things. You know, if, if someone's trying to be the nice guy and offer cuts, you want to look at the bad guy. So they start trying to one up each other with the cuts. At one point, Reagan, like Reagan blurts out, uh, let's just do it with all nuclear weapons. And Gorbachev says, Yeah, let's do it. And that's when S that's when Star Wars and SDI came into the mix and Reagan went a budge on that. Um, but it was just a very weird, loosey-goosey thing. Like it wasn't like Reagan had like prepared to put that on the table. Yeah, you know, people were really, you know, ad-libbing. And this is right before the 86 midterm and right before Iran-Contra uh, breaks, which happens right after the midterm. And Reagan is really embroiled in Iran-Contra for several months. And in that period, Gorbachev gets the advice from his team. You know what? This Star Wars thing is never going to get off the ground. It's a big waste of money. Don't, don't make it a big deal about it. Um, and Gorbachev eventually relays that to Reagan directly. You know, he, he said, I don't care if you waste your money on it. Uh, but let's do something more modest. Let's get rid of uh, these uh, mid-range nuclear missiles. Uh, and that, and this was in the spring of 87. And Reagan is so 
uh, tied up in Iran Contra. He's looking for a win. And so he grabs onto it. Let's do it. Uh, so they do the what became the INF Treaty. Uh, and at that time, a lot of conservatives were not happy with Reagan. Jesse Helms, um, I think I think Buckley was against it. Um, William Buckley. And Reagan puts out there uh, a message that says, you know what, some of these people in my party, you know, they they think whatever we're, we're, that war is inevitable. But I think if you have a chance for peace, you gotta you gotta try for peace. Um, you know, he really uh, saw something in Gorbachev they didn't see in the past Soviet leaders that a lot of conservatives were skeptical of. Uh, if you saw George Will's obit this week, you know, George Will was never was a big Gorbachev fan. He thinks he just sort of like blundered into you know, destroying communism, that he was sort of stuck in the old ways. Uh, and it's true that Gorbachev never like renounced communism fully, but clearly was a different cat. Yeah. In the past, you know, leaders. you don't want I forget where I read this, but a lot of a lot of Soviet leader because Stalin was so bad. Um, a, there, there were, I think, more than maybe several Soviet leaders whose whose ancestors, you know, parents, grandparents had been uh, persecuted by Stalin. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe Gorbachev had a relative who was sent to the gulag or siberia or something um and and that that could be an interesting factor in stalin uh well, well khrushchev who follows stalin you know khrushchev gave the so-called secret speech which revealed to a lot of people the horrible things that stalin did so you know stalin's legacy was always you know complicated for the soviets uh and and they were straining well, the arms race back then too. You know, it's the arms. You, you you can give Reagan and conservatives some credit for bankrupting the Soviets and pressuring them economically with the arms race. Uh, but at the same time, you gotta give Reagan credit for pivoting, for recognizing that. I mean, because what conservatives are mad about is like, why are you giving them a lifeline? We're squeezing them on the arms race, and now you give them a lifeline by having these cuts. Why are you doing that? Um, Reagan was an was enough of a three dimensional person to see there was value in drawing the Soviets out and encouraging Glasnost and, and, and Perestroika, uh, and even you know George Bush following Reagan, you know he wasn't trying to undercut Gorbachev. They were trying to keep the Soviet Union together and help and help Gorbachev. You know when things started to really fall apart for him, uh, and because uh, they just saw Gorbachev as a as a, a guy worth working with um and whether that was a good idea or not it depends on your perspective on one hand the soviet Union did collapse and more republics were able to be created out of the former soviet uh empire uh on the other well, hand and you would have nu nuclear weapons being well they, they were i think they were very much worried about that yeah. and 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 created ended up creating a power vacuum that putin was able to uh walk into when, when yeltsin became weak uh so you know, it's hard to have clean takes out of all this. Um, but my own takeaway is that Gorbachev is an example of the individual people in power mattering. It wasn't just, yes, there were external factors that, that, that pressured him, but he still behaved differently than all of his predecessors did despite those pressures. He wasn't the first guy to deal with economic pressures in the Soviet Union. You know, he, he could have been a Putin that tried to cling to power through tanks uh, and invasions, which he which he, he purposely did not do. Um, he got out of Afghanistan. He let the republics uh, go go their own way, um, at least some of them initially. Uh, and I think he offers a degree of hope that maybe there's another Gorbachev in the in, in Russia today somewhere that you know no one knew Gorbachev existed in 1982. No one, no one in America eyed. Oh, that guy's gonna, gonna, gonna make it someday and really transform them to the inside. Uh, we don't know who could be in the in, in the Kremlin right now. It could be that guy. Uh, you know, Putin can't live forever, uh, and he's obviously har harming himself by getting involved in a stupid invasion of Ukraine that's sapping their military. Their economy is not great. Uh, so I, I think I see Gorbachev as a beacon of hope that you know these people uh, can and will materialize at some point.
If only we had a Reagan who <laughs> was ready to, to uh, meet the moment as well. But, um, but no, I, I, I tend to agree, you know, the great man of theory of politics or of history gets criticized and I understand why, but it's also true that people matter and leader leadership matters and we can't discount that as well. I mean, I think it was in the Times Obit that said, you know, he Gorbachev restored Europe Europe to what it was before World War II, which was a collection of independent you know, individual states. I mean, you, you look at people who freed like you count the number of people he freed on his watch. It's in it's in the millions. Um so I mean maybe you don't give him like the entirety of the credit because of these other factors, but like he could have tried to steamroll them and oppress them further and cling to power, and he didn't. All right, uh, Bill, anything you want to promote this week? Um, well, just, uh, we talked a little bit about you know the midterms before. Check out my piece in the Monthly from last, uh, as late last week, how Democrats can keep the House, which talks about these 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 uh, depart, party division issues on the Republican side and how. Uh, Democrats could be the balancers. Democrats could be the balancers in this election and that and and survive in a way that is atypical but not unprecedented. Um, I want to commend to you my podcast this week, Bill. Mm -hmm. After you know, summer a summer where I ran a few reruns, uh, bounced back strong this week. Had uh, Chris Steyerwalt on to talk about his book, Broken News, had Simon Rosenberg on to talk about, I don't know if you remember, Simon was on my podcast about six weeks ago saying, don't believe the conventional wisdom, Democrats are going to do really well in the midterms. <laughs> I had him back to do a little bit of a victory tour, uh, <laughs> or at least to explain what he got right and and what he thinks is going to happen. Um, talk to... Uh, Todd Rose, who uh, is this really, Dr. Todd Rose is this, like, a brilliant guy who um, I think he like was at Harvard for a while. And he has come up with this way of measuring what people really believe. So in other words, people tell pollsters what they think they want to hear. But there is a way that we talk about on this podcast, a very sophisticated way of discerning what people really believe. And it is dramatically different. So whether it's the issue of abortion or wearing masks, um, we are self sort of self-censoring. And it's not good for us. It's not good for society. So we had a great talk about that, what Americans really think. Um, and then I just talked to Ibu Patel. Uh, this, this podcast has not gone live yet, um, but he has a book, We Need to Build, um, and basically, uh, it talks about how he started off kind of as an angry activist, but that's fine. But then at some point you need to start building institutions, uh, if you want to bring about change. And that's what that book is about. So a whole bunch of content to listen to at Matt Lewis in the news. So check that out. As, as always read my, uh, my stuff at the daily beast as well. Excellent. Good to talk to you, Matt. And, always um, Always good talking to you, Bill Share. We'll do it again next week. All right. See you back here in the DMZ.